All right, guys. Welcome to Crystal Kylan, friends. Today, how you doing? Doing you good. Doing good. Doing good. It's good. a beautiful day outside. It is. To be here with you. It's nice and warm. February, <laughs> eighty degrees. No big deal. It's. I mean, it's not the end of the world. It's totally the end of the world, but it's also really nice. Yeah, there. I'm out there. I love the end of the world. My this is gorgeous. Flowers are coming up. I'm out nice. there in the garden already. It's freaking February. Flowers blooming in. February. It's not right. I've never seen that it's in my life. Right. I ever a few times I've seen March. Yeah. Right? Even in New York, maybe a handful of times mid-March or something. But I mean, this part of the country they say March is in like a lion, out like a lamb. Correct. That's the classic yeah. idea. It's mm-hmm. like the end of March, you start to get a little bit of a break. It starts no. Ain't no lion it's anywhere. <laughs> 80 degrees and it's February. But so. I'll tell you what, the middle of the country is getting hammered though. Like Minnesota just got dumped with true ridiculous well, amounts you, of snow. Places in California are getting like Two and five feet of snow. Mountains, the mountains, even in Southern California, the mountains are getting hit with feet of snow. Yeah, it's we, just everything's weird. Everything's just strange. We got no snow here this year. None. Which we usually well, I get. Like that, we usually get at least one snow. I mean, last year was the year we got hammered with that terrible you storm. got more here in D.C. than in New York. Yeah, and it was the one, you guys probably remember, like, 95 was shut down. It was a catastrophe. Oh, yeah, people, people were, there were like, days. forming, like, bands and tribes. Tim Kaine was stuck on the highway yeah. for 48 hours. It was crazy. My house, we had 14 trees down just at our house. Yeah, I couldn't get to the kid. It was, t- it was not fun. So I'm okay to have a winter off, but I also, the number of 50 and 60 degrees days that we've had this winter. It's been very mild. Hey, we had one cold snap. That was basically it. It's helping my seasonal depression, I'll tell you that yeah, much. I well, know. It's not all that bad right now. Anyway. It's a climate crisis. Um, it's working out for us, at least. So that's what really matters. So Trevor Aronson, that's who we're talking to yeah, today. Yeah, great. Uh, he has a great podcast out. He did in-depth reporting about how the FBI infiltrated um, the BLM protests in Denver. Very suggestive of what they probably were doing all across the country. I mean, just uh, like old school agent provocateur that Trevor caught red-handed. But he also is deeply knowledgeable about FBI tactics over decades. So there's a lot we can get into with him. Now, I'm sure, by the way, Alex Jones is going to be all over this, talking about how BLM was infiltrated by the deep state and the deep state besmirched the movement. Oh, yeah. Very even, yeah. even-handed there. Correct. Yeah, that's that's the kind of guy he is. Anyway, all right. So before we get into that, looking forward to that, um, got a few things we wanted to share with you guys. So first of all, um, Bernie Sanders wrote a book, and I think it's called It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism, mm-hmm. something like that. Yep. He's been doing a little book tour, doing some interviews here and there, and Look, he's sort of letting it all hang out a little bit more as he gets in his ultra old age. Yeah. I think maybe 10 years ago, he maybe would have written a book with that title. He would have had the title a little bit different. But I was like, you know what? Let's go ahead and throw some haymakers here. And I'm here for it. I enjoy it, right? But I've seen a couple examples now of conservative commentators. They think they have lay epic own of <laughs> Bernie Sanders. They think like, oh, I got him. He walked into my trap. Yeah. And um, it is, it's all like, seven IQ nonsense. The argument that they all make is nonsense. So here you're going to see Peter Hegseth and um, Tommy Laren, a.k.a. Um, far-right Barbie. And they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna attack him <laughs> impotently. They're going to flail impotently. <laughs> and Bernie, we're going to get you. We're going to get you. Take a look. All right, back on the East Coast, everyone's favorite socialist, I mean, some people's favorite socialist, Bernie Sanders, is going on tour to promote his new book titled, It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism. Now, of course, he's selling this book on the free market. The book is not free. You have to buy it through a capitalist system. And then he's charging guests almost $100 
just to attend one of his anti-capitalism events. Glad you're bringing up Bernie Sanders. I almost forgot that he existed because when it comes to the woke Democrat party, he's actually seemingly a little more conservative than some of the new ones. But I'll tell you this, this is just exposing what is champagne democratic socialism. They don't want everybody to be equal and on a level playing field. They want the rest of us to get poorer together as a collective. And then the elites mm -hmm. like Bernie Sanders, they still want to sit at the top. They still want to collect their paycheck. They still want to live above us. It's no different than the hypocrisy of Al Gore and John Kerry riding around in a private plane. They think that they have one standard because they are so much better than us and the rest of us should just eat their crumbs. <laughs> I'm just amazed at how dishonest it is. The idea that Bernie Sanders is looking after the elites and trying oh to help out the God. elites. And it's champagne democratic socialism. And what Bernie wants is the collective, wants the majority, wants the public to be poor. That's what he wants. Literally, a, a, a one-minute Google search looking at the policies he favors yeah. debunks that entire narrative. I mean, this is a guy who's been crusading his entire time in office for higher wages. He wants a higher minimum wage. He wants, you know, more unions. He wants higher taxes on the wealthy. She was arguing he looks out for the elites and is trying to help the elites and trying to make the elites more wealthy. This guy is for raising taxes on the wealthy a lot. He's for raising taxes on billionaires, raising taxes on corporations, banning stock buybacks, like all these different things. And it's just... In one fell swoop, just swat it aside. No, Bernie loves the elites. Bernie loves them because, you know, my conception of socialism is that the elites are being helped. It is, it, you know, the, the, the public ownership of the means of production, the social ownership of the means of production. Mm -hmm. That, by definition, is anti-elitist because there, there are no more elites. Now, you could argue against, you know, the end result of such a system and say, oh, I don't think it works out for the better. You can make that argument. But the idea that it is elitist by its nature it is preposterous. It is like the definition of democratic. Yes. Well, it shows you how dishonest it is that she can't engage with any of the actual arguments that are no doubt laid out in his book. Correct. And so they go back to what is a classic attempt to just dismiss everything by basically point, oh, you exist in the society as it is now. Like, how dare you? It's you the know? meme. It's the meme. We should change society somewhat. Yet you participate in society. It, that's it. <laughs> I'm yeah. very intelligent. It's so, it is it is literally the meme. Yep. And it's the same thing they did to him too, by the way, before he ran. Um, I mean, I think especially the second time around when he ran in 2020, remember that infamous Politico piece with the money tree and Bernie yes. Sanders, which was both like, you know, wrong in the same trope, but also like sort of offensive and anti-Semitic. So there's a lot going on with this one. But, you know, they can't actually deal with the things that he's laying out. They don't want to actually engage in like his ideas about taxing the rich or getting people health care because those things are popular and their own audience would support them actually overall. So you have to come up with like just the dumbest, lowest IQ stuff to dismiss the whole thing out of hand. Uh, Don Jr. attacked him because his tickets are being sold on Ticketmaster. And it's like, dude, they are literally the only game in town. He wouldn't be able to go do the speeches without no. going through Ticketmaster. Listen, I and if you let him vote on it, he would, in a heartbeat, vote to break up Ticketmaster. Yes. So what is this hypocrisy, this imagined hypocrisy? He's selling the book, but it's not for free. Mm. <laughs> oh, wow. Really, really great. Socialism is when no money. Right. That's their that's their perception. Yes, that's exactly right. All right. So um, so Ben Shapiro, he is having a rough one over there at his uh, Daily Wire. I mean, you, you know, the whole story. Stephen Crowder turned on him a while back and I'm sure they've been impacted in terms of their their sub numbers, even if they lose three percent of their people. That's a lot of people who probably unsubscribed. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Um, 
but he's uh he's sticking to it. He's he's going right back to his pet issues and hammering away. And we stumbled across one. Jason Campbell of uh, Media Matters stumbled across one that again. He's hitting me with the bangers recently. He he was railing against the PACT Act, which was healthcare for veterans who were right, to toxic workers. Right. I covered that recently. Yes, yes. And now we got one. This may even top that. Take a look. Well, I mean, first of all, the wage to cost of living gap would not exist in the absence of regulation and subsidy, at least not nearly as much. The fact of the matter is that one of the reasons you have housing shortages in blue areas is because of development restrictions that are largely created by the left. The reason that you have massive inflation right now is, again, because of left-wing financial policy. It, it tends to be that, that wages move in tandem with costs, generally speaking, because, again, there is no such thing as a non-living wage. Nobody dies on their wage. And that, that, that is not a thing that happens inside the United States. This is why when people say living wage, the question is, well, what do you mean by a non-living wage? Do you just mean a wage that you don't think is high enough? And for what job? And what does the market look like? My God. It means a wage that you cannot afford to live on. Like, you can't afford to get an apartment. You can't afford to feed yourself, feed your kids, get health care. Wow. What are the stats, Kyle? You probably know these off the top of your head. There aren't, isn't it true there's, like, no market in America where you can afford a one-bedroom apartment I'm on I'm not sure if it was studio wage. or one-bedroom, but, yeah, there's no place in the entire country you can afford that on minimum wage. In fact, I covered a, stu a study came out recently. You would need three other roommates, I think it was, or four full-time jobs if you worked minimum wage to afford yeah, having a place that. and keeping uh, the amount you pay for it 30% or less of your income. Which is what you're, supposed, what you're supposed to do to, exactly, in terms that's what of your you're supposed to do. Costs. Yeah. So you would need four minimum wage jobs. You need to work four full-time jobs. To really, you know, be able to survive. Yeah. I mean, the whole concept is if you are working full time, you ought to be able to afford the very basics of life, food, shelter, education, healthcare. That's the whole idea. And, you know, there have all, been all kinds of studies done about how much. Uh, government aid is required to support like, Walmart workers That's right. so there was and other low-income workers. There was a study about Walmart workers, and they get paid so little that it's a guarantee that the people who are working there are going to need Medicaid. They're going to need the SNAP program, which is what they call food stamps now. Mm -hmm. So it's billions and billions of dollars that Walmart is subsidized by taxpayers. That's right. And so Ironically, if he even stuck by his own small government conservative values, he would say, force the company to pay them enough to survive so that you take the burden off the taxpayers for having to swoop in and, and pay pay the bills for these people. Yeah. But, he, you know, it, there's also another part that's just so irritating and pedantic, which is like his classic move. Like, well, what do you mean by living wage? No one's dying on their way. Like, you know exactly what we mean. And by the way, people <laughs> do actually die. Like, for example, we're not we, having health care. We don't have universal health care in this country. And about 45,000 people die every single year because they don't have it. So and we have what? It's 80 or 85 million people who are uninsured or underinsured. The number one cause of bankruptcy in this country is medical bills, about 500,000 medical bankruptcies every single year. And you're sitting over there and being this pedantic, condescending, scolding prick. Right. Like, Quibbling over the terminology. Mean? It's not like you get your paycheck and then you just pass away on the spot at the job. <laughs> yeah, bro. Epic own. Yeah, that's like, what we meant. That's what we yeah, what that's what you thought about? we meant. Yeah, it's um it's it's 
classic Ben Shapiro to like quibble over some terminology like that instead of actually grappling with the fact that, yeah, millions of Americans based on working full time, which is what you tell them they should be out doing out in the marketplace, like doing the whole grind set thing. And they're doing it. They're doing the Ben Shapiro model and they still can't afford the very basics. And you still blame them. Yeah, you still blame them. Yes. So what are you complaining about? God, it's so it's so annoying. I mean, look, but I will say this. I, I love it when he talks about like economic stuff. Yeah, that's, those are like the very illuminating moments. Yeah, yeah we're like, revealing. oh, because, you know, we've seen the polls, what, 70, 80 percent of the country wants to raise the minimum wage. And then here's this guy and look how he casually talks about we have millions of people who are working poor people in this country. And he's just so flippant and glib. It's like, yeah, dude, we get it. You're a millionaire. You know, you're comfortable and you stick to your uh, basically economic libertarianism and cling to it like a kid clings to their blanket. We get it, but this is not appealing by any stretch of the imagination. When he goes off on his culture war stuff and he hammers away, I mean, a lot of that stuff's not popular too, but you can see that there's some audience there that wants to hear that perspective. Yeah. When it comes to this stuff, it's like, you know, who are you talking to? You talking to the CEO of Pfizer? Is that who enjoys this commentary? Yeah, it's such a throwback to a different era when Republicans used to delude themselves more into thinking that this was something that actually sold with the public. And... Trump, it's not that they changed their views or their policy. I mean, we all know Trump's biggest accomplishment in office, gigantic tax cut uh, designed by Paul Ryan, by the way. But um, but they did kind of realize like, oh, this these attacks on Social Security and Medicare and like constantly trying to like get rid of the minimum wage and things like like this is not really pop. Maybe we should should not talk about these things. Let's talk about like schools and transgender ideology or whatever instead. But uh, yeah, this is a throwback to when they used to like delude themselves into thinking that this might actually be popular. Yeah. <laughs> Good luck with that. Good luck with that, Ben. All right. So um, you have a bunch of Republicans are either running or about to run. Yes. You, of course, no Nikki Haley jumped in the race. Her launch has been <laughs> terrible. Like all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't book Nikki Haley's reputation back together again. I mean, she's, it's, it's, it's a joke. Embarrassing, yes. So, but you also have Mike Pence, mm-hmm. who's been not so subtly teasing the run. Right. You have Tim Scott, who created a, like a pack for it recently, and now he's doing interviews, and it's like, oh boy, here we go, right? So, um, but one of the things that I'm noticing is that Hannity is actually playing a henchman for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He, and he's doing a good job of it because he keeps asking everybody who comes on his show, and they all do, very simple question. How do you differ from Trump policy-wise? Right. It's the, it's the most logical question in the world. It's the best question Sean Hannity has ever asked. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah. And these people are just fumbling the ball. These yeah. people are just tripping over themselves and face-planting on the concrete. It is, it is hilarious. So first, we'll show you Tim Scott. What are the differences in terms of <laughs> policy positions that, for example, you may have with President Trump? Probably not very many at all. I I am so thankful that we have President Trump in office. Frankly, the policies that we were able to pass from 2017 to 2020 were monumental. (laughs) Okay, but, you know, I did ask myself on that one, is he just auditioning for vice president? Is he like not going to run, but he's going to want to be vice president? Right. So that's part of that. That was part of my commentary, too, when I talked about him potentially running, is that some of these people are just auditioning for VP. So is does he view his role as like, I'm just going to clonk everybody else over the head to try to snuggle up to Trump to try to get the VP pick? That is possible. Yeah. That is possible. Look, it strikes me, 
I don't know. I feel like Nikki Haley's dumb enough and has her, her head gassed up enough from the donor class that like she, she thinks she can win. I agree. She thinks she's the one. Tim Scott, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe he is smart enough. That answer just seemed so, I mean, it wasn't just he dodged the question. He was actively like, Trump was amazing. Those policies were, what do you say, monumental right. or something? Right. That felt to me more like, okay, you're just auditioning for VP. So, Haley had her terrible, I'm not kicking sideways. <laughs> I'm kicking forward. What I'm saying is I'm kicking forward. It's like, what are you even talking about right now? That I don't know. That felt to me like she's afraid to hit Trump. Because she knows he's popular with the base. But she's, she's trying to differentiate this, herself. Yeah, she's got this. Yeah, she's clearly trying to differentiate herself. And she had those like subtle jabs that most of the base took as being about Biden's age, but could also be read to being about Trump's age. So that's the thing she's trying yeah. to do. I'm younger. Right. So I, I can, it seems to me, I agree with your assessment that she actually thinks she might be able to win. Yeah, him, I don't know. But yeah. if he is actually trying to win... <laughs> These answers are just so silly. It's, right. uh, yeah, it's unbelievable. I, I got one more. Mike okay. Pence, go ahead. If you do get in, it would mean you are going up against your former partner, mm-hmm. President Trump. Is that a factor? A. B. Where would you be different on issues than President Trump? Well, I said early on that uh, the only thing I had decided was that I wasn't going to let anybody else make the decision for me. So, whether it's the former president or any other candidate, we'll, we'll make a decision based on what I and my family feel called to do in this moment in the life of the nation. That's not remotely what he asked you, didn't, dude. Didn't answer the question at all. <laughs> Look, here's what I'm amazed by. These people have a lot of big money behind them. Yeah. Nobody on your staff, nobody who's part of your campaign, who's an advisor, nobody. Yeah. Said, Look, one of the first questions you're going to get is this. Here's how you need to answer it. Right. None of them prepare for it. Nikki Haley got asked this question three or four times. Right. And I actually think, I mean, it's even almost more embarrassing with Nikki Haley because she clearly did prepare that answer in advance and it was st- still such yeah, a bad that was, answer. That was like the third time is when she gave that answer. Yeah. Originally, she was like, you know, with Pence, the funny thing is Pence actually does have policy differences with Trump. But he's not bringing them up. They actually make him worse than Trump. Well, that's right. There's one that he has been talking about, not in the context of answering the question. Right. He's been talking about, hey, on Social Security, we got to get our fiscal house in order. We're going to have to do something in order to reform it for the next generation. Not only so that, he's calling for cuts and Trump is not. Not only that, he's he's actually floating privatization of Which the style that Bush they tried, tried that. under the Bush administration. Right. It like totally crashed and burned. But yeah, I mean, listen, that's a difference. And also on abortion, Trump doesn't want to say anything about it. He doesn't want to say a word about abortion. And Pence has already called for a national <laughs> abortion ban. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, not that I, it just shows me because he does have actually clear policy differences, which again, in my opinion, make him worse than Trump. But he's so afraid to criticize this man that he won't even lay out what are very obvious policy differences. Even in the one area where he's actually on the side of the majority of the American people, he's not leaning into it. Namely, the other guy keeps saying the 2020 election was stolen and he wants to be reinstated and yeah. wants to terminate the you Constitution. You can't say that in a Republican primary, I personally primary, don't though. want to terminate the Constitution. You can't make a case for the Constitution a, no, as being a difference mm, between you and Trump. The, the, not the levels of puckery are just oozing out of these people. Yeah. And their egos drive me crazy, Crystal. What on earth made you think you are God's gift to this earth? In the case of Mike Pence, maybe literally he's super religious. He, he feels like that, God picked yeah. him or whatever. Like, what makes you think that? What, you can't even answer the question how you're different from Trump on policy, yet you think like, yes, I'm going to be the one who gets all the way through and becomes president. I don't know 
where they get this this self-belief from. It's astonishing to me. There's not a single thing about any of these people who are flirting with the run now or are already running now yeah. that are like, you know, Trump on a bad day is is going to curb stomp most of these people. I think the only one who has any chance at all is DeSantis. And even for him, things need to fall in place in order for it to happen. I think waiting for Trump to self-destruct is a fool's errand. I don't necessarily agree. I think Trump's the favorite, but I think it's like a maybe 65% likelihood Trump wins. If you're betting on uh, Trump is just going to collapse and people are going to... No, not going to happen. All right, gotcha. Well, that was a long debate. Anyway, all right, guys, let's jump into Trevor Aronson, Alphabet Boys, all about that FBI. Let's get to it. Trevor, welcome. It's great to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Of course. Um, Congrats on the podcast. I got to talk to you a little bit about it for Breaking Points, but there was so much to dig into. I wanted to have a chance to have a longer conversation with you about the podcast and also about sort of the FBI, the deep state in general. Um, But let's go ahead and start with your uh, podcast, Alphabet Boys. You have this piece in The Intercept where you describe the storyline here, and the headline is, The Snitch in the Silver Hearse, the FBI paid a violent felon to infiltrate Denver's racial justice movement. So just tell us a little bit about the reporting and what you found here. Yeah, so I remember during the summer of 2020, you know, having reported for years on the FBI's counterterrorism program, I was really curious if they would use these practices that had been commonplace during the war on terror, the use of informants and the use of sting operations to lure people in the plots that the FBI would then foil. I was curious if that was happening during the summer of 2020, particularly given the context that in the first year of the Trump administration, the FBI had defined black political activism as so-called black identity extremism. And there seemed to be a predisposition in the bureau to view black political activism as potentially dangerous, as potentially violent. And so when that summer happened, like all Americans, I was seeing these images on my screen of the protests. And um, I was curious if this was the case. And for about a year, I searched for examples of this with, with no luck. And then Um, I was able to obtain about a dozen hours of recordings and 300 pages from the FBI, uh, from within the FBI, that that revealed how the FBI had hired a violent felon in Denver who, you know, very uh, notably had had driven around in a silver hearse filled with weapons in the back and then would go to the protests and over time eventually became a leader of the protests in Denver and was not only encouraging otherwise peaceful protests to become violent, but then was trying to entice and entrap uh, racial justice activists in specific crimes. So I seem to recall that I don't, I'm not going to get the year right. I want to say it was like 2017 or something like that. There was a shooting from, I don't know if it was a BLM protester or, or something like that. They shot a police officer. I want to say it was in Dallas. Could be butchering the facts here, but I remember the, I, I remember this general thing happening. So my question for you is: Was the categorization of the FBI of you know black identity extremists is it something that predates that shooting, or is it something that they brought about like after that shooting happened? So the the FBI report that that defined black identity extremism rested on about six cases that the FBI claimed kind of created the trend and, and laid the foundation for this ideology or this this category. And one of those, as I recall, is the the incident that you describe in Dallas. There were other incidents around the country of uh, Black Americans attacking police officers. It's important to note, though, that the, none of the cases involved people who knew each other, and there was no unifying ideology. Uh, but the FBI took these six cases, which by individually were tragic, you know, people were harmed, but they took these six cases and used them to kind of tie them together to, to create this 
category called Black Identity Extremism, which the FBI based on the idea that Black political activists after Ferguson, after the demonstrations in Ferguson, Missouri, had become radicalized and, and that they were more prone to be involved in violent or anti-government behavior or extremist behavior as a result of this. And it's also important to point out as well that this Black identity extremism was a, was a catch-all label. It wasn't just uh, a, a Black activists involved in a particular ideology. It really ranged. They, what they included were um, more Science Temple, which is an offshoot of sovereign citizenship, a right-wing ideology, as well as left-wing forms of Black nationalism. And so they were really taking almost all of any ideology that had received a Black following in the United States and kind of lumped it all together in this Black identity extremism category and then used these six cases of violence, all unconnected, to make the case that this was a thing. And I think to this day, I think there's a lot of rightful criticism that this really isn't a thing, but it was something that the FBI defined So talk to us a little bit about specifically what happened in Denver. So your main character here is a guy whose nickname is Mickey. Um, Protests had already been ongoing. There was a sort of established uh, group of activists on the ground in Denver who were protesting even before uh, George Floyd was was murdered. And uh, Mickey shows up out of nowhere. He's driving a silver hearse. He's like talking a big game about everywhere he's been and everything he's done. How does he start to gain the trust of the activists who were there on the ground? Yeah, so it's important to point out that he doesn't look at all like what you'd expect a racial justice activist to look like. He was pushing 50 years old amid these crowd, this crowd of protesters in their teens and 20-somethings. He was dressing in military fatigues with patches on his shirt that appeared to be the type that you have to earn in battle. And he claimed that he had fought with the French Foreign Legion and the Peshmerga. And, and now he was really down with the Black Lives Matter movement was, was how he portrayed himself. And obviously a lot of activists were immediately suspicious of this guy. But there were two things that happened that I think helped disarm them. One was, you know, a number of activists told me that like, he looked exactly like the type of guy the police would send in. And so in that way, they were like, it can't be that, right? No. It's like, there's no way they'd send in someone so obviously <laughs> an informant. And then the other thing that he did that was quite, if not accidental, sophisticated, was that he allied himself very quickly with these young and, and somewhat naive activists who were part of the Young Democratic Socialists of America. And they he became part of this group and the leader of this group. And I think a lot of the activists, or what the activists told me in Denver, who were more skeptical of him, was that they saw him with these younger activists, these younger allies. And even though they were initially suspicious of him, they thought, well, he must be okay because he's with these younger activists. Mm-hmm. And Again, whether that was a, whether it's accidental or deliberate, it ended up being a very sophisticated move because it ended up disarming um, the activists who otherwise may have been really resistant to accepting him into the fold. Um, in your estimation, how widespread is this? Like, is this still sort of the bread and butter of the FBI in the same way that when we think of the 1960s, you have the letter to Martin Luther King Jr. that was basically like, hey, you should kill yourself. And you have, they try to do the same thing to Malcolm X. So in your estimation, is it like, is this still the bread and butter of the FBI infiltrate any sort of outsider movement, right wing, left wing, whatever it may be, and uh, try to take them down with work like this? So I I think, you know, Obviously, the case in Denver has been compared to COINTELPRO and the 1960s behavior of the FBI. And I think it's been framed at times as if, you know, COINTELPRO never stopped. And, you know, what ended up happening was following COINTELPRO, the church committee issued a report, declared much of its activity illegal, and there were reforms. And I, and I do believe that those reforms had an effect, even though in some cases 
the policies and practices that were part of COINTEL remained in effect in different ways in the FBI. But I think the defining thing that happened here that allowed the 2020 infiltration to happen was that post 9-11, the FBI was given an enormous amount of power. Uh, much of that power has largely been left unaccountable by Congress or hasn't had the accountability that it really deserves. And during that post 9-11 period, the FBI's informant ranks swell. There are now more than 15,000 informants in the FBI. If you go back to Hoover's FBI, there were only 1,500 informants. Hmm. So we have 10 times the number of informants than we did during COINTELPRO. Wow. At the same time, there was a new authority that was given to the FBI called an assessment that under kind of the guise of national security, the FBI can launch an investigation on just about anyone without having a criminal predicate, which is a reasonable basis to believe that criminal activity is occurring. This assessment was meant to allow the FBI to investigate very quickly people who were potentially terrorists, right? Someone reporting to have a bomb in their home or something like that. So there was a lower threshold to launch an investigation. And so now you fast forward 20 years from 9-11 and the summer of 2020 is happening and all of these powers remain inside the FBI. And I think what happened was that because of these powers, because these powers had been left unchecked for so long that it wasn't so much that COINTELPRO never stopped. It was that these new powers allowed the FBI to kind of backslide into the types of behaviors that um, it, it used in, in COINTELPRO. And I think that's so in many ways we have a duplication of those uh, bad, if not illegal activities and behaviors as a result of kind of powers granted during the post 9-11 era. Can you take us through, like, take some time to go through the history of the way these powers have been wielded under different administrations? Has it mattered the um, partisan affiliation of the president at the time? Like, you know, did this happen under Trump because he was uh, uh, he hated Antifa and he hated Black Lives Matter? Have they been used consistently? Have they been used against the same groups? Like, just take us through, starting with the Bush administration, obviously, you've got the war on terror targeted a lot of, like, young, sort of listless Muslim men. Continue through the Obama administration, Trump administration, into the present day, what the Biden administration is doing now. Yeah, so during the Trump, or excuse me, during the, the Bush administration in the immediate years after 9-11, one of the things that we saw is the use of anti-terrorism laws um, against animal rights and environmental activists. So there are a number of cases from 2001 through about 2004 involving environmental and animal rights activists as part of what was termed the green scare, this, this, hmm. this perception that these environmental activists and animal rights activists would become extreme and cause terrorism and violence. And so there were a number of cases that were built using FBI informants and sting operations where they provided the means for them to commit this crime. One of the notable cases is a man named Eric McDavid in California. Um, and then at the same time, we saw the use of these tactics um, against Muslims in, in counterterrorism investigations with this idea that the FBI was trying to find possible threats in the United States and find young Muslims who are interested in extremist ideologies and violence and catch them as they cross that line from sympathizer to operator. And the way they would do that would be to use informants who are paid you know, thousands and thousands of dollars or who are working for the FBI for another benefit, such as an immigration benefit. And that informant would then offer the target the opportunity to commit a crime, offering a fake bomb, fake weapons. And then when they take possession of those weapons or try to detonate the bomb, the FBI swoops in, arrests them and announces to the public a terrorism plot foiled. And, you know, since 9-11, there have been more than 200 defendants who have been Muslim defendants who have been caught in cases like that. And what's interesting to note, I think, is that you actually see an uptick in those types of cases 
under the Obama administration following the Bush administration. So after hmm. after Obama takes office, there's actually an uptick in that type of activity by the FBI targeting Muslims uh, in, in counterterrorism stings. Hmm. It's also important important to note, I think, you know, given this context of happening now with Jim Jordan's committee that wants to kind of create this perception that the FBI uses these ta- these tactics solely on right wing and conservative activists, that there have been cases under the Obama administration and the and the and later the Trump administration where these tactics were used against right right wing groups. So, for example, following the standoff in Nevada with Cliven Bundy's group, the FBI used a fake undercover documentary crew to go in and investigate and try to build a criminal case that was ultimately unsuccessful, but under the guise of being journalists, were, was collecting information for, for a criminal investigation. There was also a case in, in Utah involving a, um, a conservative activist who, was, who initially was at the Nevada standoff, who was caught in a sting where he was given a fake bomb that he planted in the BLM cabin, um, in a Bureau of Land Management cabin, excuse me. And then finally, the one that I think people know about the most is um, this case in Michigan involving a plot to cat- kidnap Governor Gretchen Whitmer. That happened under the Trump administration. So these tactics have been used throughout administrations. I mean, this is one constant, I think, is that the FBI has has perfected and, and used these t- tools widely. Um, and I think, you know, the case in Denver where the FBI inserts an informant into the racial justice movement is in line with all of those tactics. But I think if you look at the, the record of prosecutions in the previous 20 years, it's true that the FBI abuses all sorts of people across the political spectrum and abuses its powers against those people across the political spectrum. But if you look at the record of prosecutions, there are cases like the Michigan one, like the Bundy one, like the Utah one that target conservatives. But that tends to be a minority compared to the, the larger list of cases that the FBI uses against uh, you know Muslims and against le- more left-wing activists. And so this idea that's currently being, you know, trying to be created by by Jordan and others that the FBI is solely focused on these right-wing groups is not true. I mean, certainly there are cases, but it doesn't, but it's not true that this is, you know, uh, an, that the Bureau is an agency that is solely focused on targeting right-wing actors because that's just not the case. The famously left-wing FBI, of course. Yeah, <laughs> um, so how much of this work is just sort of like contrived and and fake. So you gave the war on terror example there of like entrapping young Muslim men who are, you know, maybe borderline and have mental health issues and almost forcing them to do it and then going, aha, we caught him, we're heroes. Uh, The fake plot for Governor Gretchen Whitmer, I know you covered that quite a bit, the BLM infiltration. Is this like agent provocateur stuff? Is this this entrapment or is this uh, totally legal? Because it seems to me to almost exist in this sort of gray area in a way. It does. And so I think the the legal definition of entrapment is very different from what I think most people would consider entrapment. So when a lot of people hear about these cases, they they immediately say, oh, that's that's entrapment, right? They totally set this guy up. But the legal definition of entrapment is, is a much harder sell. And what we've seen in case after case involving Muslim defendants in particular is that juries have been unwilling to believe that the the person was entrapped. And to show that they're entrapped, they need to show that they were not predisposed to the crime and that the undercover agent or the informant overwhelmed their will and they just would not have committed this crime were it not for the government agent being involved. And juries just for a number of reasons have been unwilling to, to be sympathetic to that argument. And I think, you know, whether this is kind of created in a sense, I mean, I think one of the important things to understand in my view is that, you know, 
you may recall immediate in the immediate year after after 9-11 or the immediate days after 9-11, there was some talk of splitting the FBI into two agencies, an intelligence and a law enforcement agency, similar to what the UK has with MI5 and MI6. And Robert Mueller, then the FBI's director, lobbied George W. Bush and said, you know, let's keep the FBI a single agency, that there is uh, a benefit to having an agency that is both in charge of investigating crime as well as stopping terrorism and collecting intelligence. Um, but what I would argue the the downside to that, to not splitting the agency, is that ultimately the FBI, as both an intelligence agency charged with stopping threats to the homeland, is ultimately measured by the metrics of law enforcement, which are arrests made, prosecutions, successful convictions. And so what you see year after year in the post-9-11 era is that the FBI is given billions of dollars for counterterrorism. Uh, you know, I believe three billion of the six billion dollar budget on average every year went to counterterrorism. So roughly half of the FBI's budget was going for counterterrorism. And every year, like any agency, the FBI needs to justify and, and guarantee the funding for the next year. And so how does the FBI do that for counterterrorism? You know, if you stop an attack, how do you say you stopped an attack? Well, for the FBI, that means showing that you had an arrest and a, and a prosecution. And so what I think happened and what incentivized the FBI to pursue a lot of these sting cases that were quite questionable was that that ultimately helped them with the metrics when they would go to Congress. They could go before Congress and say, look, we stopped this case in New York, this case in Chicago, this case in Miami, without necessarily having to explain to Congress that they largely created the case through the use of the sting operation. But it gives them the numbers that they can then use to justify their funding. And I know that's a very cynical way of viewing what's happening, but it's the it's the most explainable way, in my view, as to why the FBI would continue to use these tactics year after year. Well, a lot of careers are made, too, with the big, you know, the big showy disruption of the Herald Square terrorist bombing or the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping or whatever it might be. And um, to go back to the, the Whitmer piece, because I, I did track this uh, quite closely, but I also have a memory that really sucks. My recollection is that uh, some of the alleged plotters got off and some of them did not. And basically, the the ones that got off, it was because, number one, there were so many informants involved. Number two, it came out some of the key informants were themselves criminals who continued to violate the law. I know one got in trouble for, like, beating his wife. Another one was trying to, like, profit off of his involvement with the FBI. It was just a total and complete mess. So um, explain to people, you know, what exactly happened there and uh, what allowed them to succeed in making an, a case about uh, FBI entrapment where so many other cases, you know, Muslim men who were uh, subjected to these similar tactics were not successful in convincing juries and judges that they should be let off because they were entrapped. Yeah. So in this particular case, there was a group of Michigan men in and an FBI informant infiltrated the group. And ultimately, the FBI used two informants, I believe, and one undercover agent. And there's questions about who the real leader was, the, the defendants in the case, um, argued that the FBI informant was the leader, and certainly a, a lot of evidence, you know, um, suggested that as well. Um, ultimately, the government argued that an, the, one of the defendants ultimately was the leader of this plot, and it went to trial. And initially, there was a, there was an acquittal on, I believe, two of the defendants, and 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 two others. There was a hung jury. Ultimately, those two others were convicted a few months ago, I believe. Um, but what's 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 interesting, I think, and I remember saying this when this was the first announced, was that. You know, the, the entrapment argument that this group made was very similar to the entrapment group, the entrapment argument that many, many Muslims have made for the last 20 years and have ultimately been unsuccessful. So to me, this was partially a, a test of whether, you know, 
uh, you know, white defendants accused of a, a right wing crime, right wing extremism might be might have a more sympathetic jury to entrapment than um, people of color accused of Islamist extremism. And certainly that did appear to be the case. Uh, ultimately, two were convicted. It is important to, to note that as in a lot of these cases involving Muslims as well as others, you know, the defendants in the Michigan case really lacked the capacity to commit this very, very ambitious crime that they ultimately were charged with trying to plot, right? The kidnapping of an American governor. So the, the, the person the government alleged was the leader lived in the, in the basement of a, a vacuum repair store, had very little money, had very little connections. Part of the plot to kidnap Go- Governor Gretchen Whitmer involved bombing this bridge that would then prevent police from responding to their kidnapping of the governor. And of course, like none of the men charged with the crime, none of the men who were not government agents were able to blow up that bridge. It was actually an undercover agent who claimed to be an explosives expert who was the key to blowing up that bridge. And so the entire plot hinged on the participation of this undercover agent. And that what's interesting about that is that it's that's very similar to most of the undercover terrorism stings that we see where the defendants are unable to move forward in the plot without the undercover agent. And I think that's really the difference between manufactured plots and dis- disrupting plots, right? Post 9-11, the idea was that the FBI was supposed to stop real terrorists from committing these crimes, disrupting the plot. But instead, what's happened is that in the absence of many people trying to commit these acts of terrorism, the FBI is manufacturing these plots by finding people who are susceptible for whatever reason, whether it's you know mental deficiency, or it's they're incentivized by money or something else. They they lure them into the plot, and then the plot is made possible by the undercover agents who then facilitate everything. And and that's the case in, in Michigan, um, and 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 that's also the case in Denver. Right? When the FBI informant infiltrates the the Black Lives Matter movement, what he was trying to do was exactly what the informants and the undercover agents in Denver were trying to do. Excuse me, in Michigan, we're trying to do which is to facilitate some sort of headline grabbing crime that mm. could then be pinned on these on these on these activists. Mm. So is there evidence of like these FBI agents being the ones to commit crimes? Like how many crimes are these FBI agents actually doing themselves in the midst of all this? Like you think back to the BLM riots and protests and there were instances of like, you know, Walgreens or whatever getting getting burned down. Is there specific examples of like very clear crimes being committed by these FBI agents that they then obviously have immunity for? Because in theory, it's like, oh, you're trying to take down the actual criminals. So when you commit crimes, it doesn't count or whatever. Yeah. So in the summer of 2020, as, as you may remember, there were all sorts of reports about suspicious people entering these activist groups and, you know, even video of people doing things that were highly suspicious. The 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 one that people talk about the most is the one in Minneapolis, the so-called umbrella, umbrella man, man who yep. was holding an umbrella and knocking out windows. Um, a lot of people suspected that that person was some sort of government infiltrator or someone trying to stoke um, violence. What we don't know is how many of these reports really involved true government agents. All we can say is that the Denver case is the first example that we have in the first kind of behind the scenes look at what the FBI was doing. And what they did essentially was have this informant not only um, encourage people to turn otherwise peaceful protests into into violent acts, but he was trying, as in the case in Michigan, to get these activists involved in a very, very sophisticated plot. So his plot involved the the assassination of Phil Weiser, the, the Colorado State Attorney General, and he tried to recruit two Black activists to participate with him in a supposed plot to assassinate the Attorney General. 
ultimately neither man would would move forward with that plot and and it went nowhere but it showed you the the level of ambition that the FBI had in trying to create a conspiracy that they could then charge these black activists with or these racial justice activists with and it's my theory although it hasn't been proven yet that the Denver case is not anomalous i think it's more likely that this happened as it did in Denver in other cities around the country than it is that this somehow involved a few bad actors in Denver who were acting, you know, only this way there. I think that's highly unlikely. I think the more likely scenario is that this have this was part of a broader strategy by the FBI. And certainly it fits with its 20 years of history and the use of stings and informants. And so my hope is that by revealing what happened in Denver, we know we be we may begin to hear more about how these kind of activities happened in other cities around the country that summer. Well, and happily, there's been extreme interest in the story that you uncovered here. I saw a lot of coverage in it. And certainly when we covered on Breaking Points, there was a lot of uh, audience interest in what exactly it revealed. And um, to Kyle's question, I, I remember seeing this report back maybe a year ago. There were some documents that Gizmodo got their hands on that revealed federal government informants had committed 22,800 crimes between 2011 and 2014. Now, that doesn't mean they were specifically about these plots, but those were like the authorized crimes by these informants. Taxpayers footed a $548 million bill for informants working for the FBI, DEA, and ATF over that period from 2011 to 2018. And unclassified government documents obtained by Gizmodo found that 9,600 crimes were committed by informants just during 2017 and 2018, the first two years, they point out, of Donald Trump's presidency. So to give you the, you know, full context of how much they're, quote unquote, disrupting crime and how many crimes they're actually authorizing to be committed. Um, Trevor, one thing I wanted to ask you about, which I don't know if it's a a sticky question or not, but there's been a lot of uh, what I would characterize as right wing conspiracy around January 6th and the idea that it's a false flag, et cetera, et cetera. We just had Kevin McCarthy dump all of the raw footage from that day uh, to Tucker Carlson, hardly an honest actor in these matters. Um, But it is true that some of the the right wing groups that were involved are known to have been uh, infiltrated by FBI informants in the past. Enrique Tarrio was famous. Head of the Proud Boys, famously an FBI informant himself, at least in the past, allegedly. So my bigger question has always been, you know, how did they fail to disrupt this actual plot? You know, what do you suspect was sort of going on behind the scenes there that allowed this all to unfold without, um, you know, without adequate resources on the scene, adequate security to protect the Capitol ultimately? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of conspiracy theories swirling around January 6th, and it's it's politically convenient for a number of these people to, to push them forward, right? I remember uh, about a year or so ago, Tucker Carlson did a monologue about how this was an inside job, and he, and he cited some very, very questionable reporting from Revolver News, mm-hmm. a conspiracy-oriented website. And he even like cited my book, The Terror Factory, about cases in targeting Muslims. And Tucker Carlson's claim was, look, this guy Trevor Aronson wrote this book where they did it to Muslims. And that's what they did on January 6th. And, and the truth is that that isn't clear. That is not the evidence does not support that assertion. So what we do know, obviously, is that the FBI had informants in these various groups, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers um, being two of them that we, we know of. Whether the FBI informants played a role in pushing forward any of the violence that happened on January 6th, none of that has been proven that I've seen. Um, and it's not necessarily uh, shocking that the government would have informants to some degree in some of these groups. I, I think what's what runs against this idea 
that the FBI was somehow organizing this threat what is that the fact that David Bowditch, the FBI's second in command prior to January 6th, had assured Congress that the FBI was ready for any incidental things that could happen on January 6th and that they were prepared. And so if the FBI's goal is to, to stitch together a conspiracy involving informants as agent provocateurs who then push forward this plot that the FBI can then bust, as has been the case for 20-some years in these plots, then why wasn't the FBI prepared to then thwart this and say, look, we saved the Capitol from these extremists with our informants mm-hmm. embedded? Mm-hmm. So the idea that the FBI was engineering this plot seems is not supported by the evidence that is currently available that I've seen. And it also is, is somewhat hard to believe given the scale of January 6th. If you look at the number of plots that the FBI has done in the 20 years since 9-11, then, you know, if you want to use the Michigan plot as an example, you know, this was, you know, 10 or so men involved in a, in a plot, you know, with, with January 6th, you're talking of huge, you know, scales, much larger than that of people coming in. So the idea that the FBI could orchestrate that sort of plot, um, and make it happen is is a much harder thing to assume, and the evidence just doesn't support it. And so I think, like, I, I don't think it's reasonable to say just because the FBI had informants in these organizations that it was pushing them forward and, um, you know, was a part of this plot. I mean, I think, if anything, it shows the intelligence failure at play, that if they did have informants in place, and at the same time, Bowditch and the FBI are telling Congress don't worry, we have January 6th under control. I think this is less a question of did the FBI orchestrate this and more a question of intelligence failure in the same way that there was an intelligence failure on 9-11. Like what went wrong this for the FBI not to realize that this was going to happen? And I think it's very, it's politically convenient for uh, conservatives to say, you know, look, there's all this circumstantial evidence, informants were involved, January 6th must have been some sort of engineered plot. But the facts that I've seen do not support that at all. But, okay, so it's interesting, though, because this is why I find this conversation so fascinating, is that some of this stuff seems relatively straightforward and clear to me, and that some of it seems very nuanced. So, like, the the war on terror examples of somebody who has, like, mental health issues, some you know, an 85 IQ young Muslim man who in no way, shape, or form would have taken some violent action unless they were basically groomed by the FBI mm-hmm. to do that. In a case like that, I go, that's... That's clear cut. And like the FBI agent is the criminal in that instance. But then there are other instances where I feel like it's a much more nuanced conversation. Like, so if you have an FBI agent that sort of lights the spark that then leads to a colossal riot because the mob mentality takes over, I feel like there's more gray area there because if all it took was one person being, you know, violent, at least in so far as property damage is violence. If all it takes is to see one person doing that for you to then do that and you go burn down a store or whatever, I don't know. That that is that's like debatable to me. I, I can kind of see how the argument could be made. Like, no, we're actually trying to keep the streets clean and keep the violent criminals away. So even to go to the January sixth example, like, even if I grant the Tucker Carlson his argument, you know, a lot of the far right wingers the argument that hey, the FBI lit the spark or whatever. I would say, yeah, but the thousands of people that that ran into the Capitol and broke windows and attacked police officers and all that stuff, they're still criminals, regardless of who, even if I say, yeah, the FBI started through the first punch or did the first violent thing, I still don't have much sympathy for the people who ran in there and committed a thousand other crimes. So you see what I'm talking about uh, when it comes to the nuance of it? It's, it's often why Crystal and I have had this debate before, too. 
Like when I look at the CIA, I basically see pure evil. <laughs> but when I look at the FBI, I can see, oh, okay, they took down the mafia here. They took down the KKK here. Cool, great, you know, keep going. And then it's like, oh no, you went after Martin Luther King. Are you guys psycho? So, it, but it's a more balanced conversation. I mean, I, I, I agree with you in the sense that one or two informants can can certainly change the, the the tenor of a conversation or what's happening at a demonstration, right? If you have one or two guys saying, you know, let's burn this place down and they're, they throw a brick. I mean, it's possible that that's going to um, encourage other people to behave similarly. And I agree with you in the sense that just because an informant may have done that doesn't mean that the person who follows the informant in doing that is, is entrapped or innocent, right? They've, they've committed a crime as well. But I think the difference between a lot of these terrorism plots and what we saw on January 6th is like, let's assume that there were informants there who were maybe instigating to some degree that they were trying to encourage violence to see, see what else happens. You know, that's different in the sense that you, the terrorism plots that we've seen, including the Michigan case, are really these elaborate pro plots that require the participation of FBI agents as almost lead actors in these plots to make these these plots possible. And if you look at January 6th, I mean, Stuart Rhodes and a number of Oath Keepers were convicted on sedition charges related to their activities on January 6th that did not require the participation or leadership of any sort of informant to make their plots possible. And so there were crimes committed. There were there was organization that happened, happened with January 6th separate from the involvement of any informants. And so I agree with you in the sense that it is a very provocative and interesting question, and we should understand much more about how the FBI, how many informants the FBI had there, what they knew when it happened. But I think also think it was clear that some of the organization that happened, particularly among the Oath Keepers, was independent of any sort of federal uh, involvement with informants kind of pushing plots plots along. I think the point you made is the most salient one, which is it really raises a lot of questions, to put it diplomatically, about how, okay, they're busy sort of ginning up these like two-bit plots that they can then swoop in and pretend to disrupt. And meanwhile, they have infiltrators in these organizations that are plotting real crimes that were, you know, incredibly damaging and traumatic to the nation. And when there's a real some real shit going down, like, where are you? What are you doing? How'd you let this one happen when you're out there, you know, manufacturing these plots in other instances? Yeah. So I, I do want to point out that there's a longer history of this. So if you look back at the Boston Marathon bombings, for example, the FBI investigated Tomlin Zarnayev, the older brother, as a possible security threat, and then ultimately let, you know, passed him, thought, ruled him as not a threat. There are questions of whether they inform, tried to recruit him as an informant, but ultimately did not keep a closer eye on him. At the same time, they that same FBI office in Boston pursued a man named Reswan Ferdows in a supposed plot to use a remote-controlled airplane laden with bombs to bomb the Capitol in Washington, D.C. This was a plot they wholly made possible, provided the weapons, provided the money, provided the transportation. And so there was a question in that case is whether the FBI was so distracted by Reswan Ferdows in Boston that they turned a blind eye to what happened with Tomlin Sarnaev wow. in the Boston Marathon bombing. And, you know, similarly, the Pulse shooting in Orlando, the FBI had looked at Omar Mateen, um, oh. ended up ruling he was not a threat and pursued a similar um, sting operation in South Florida out of that same office around the same time. So that's not to suggest that the FBI can't do two things at once, but it does raise a significant question about whether the FBI is too focused on sting operations that are more easily attainable as prosecutions and convictions and arrests than they are against these much harder to crack cases that involve people like Stuart Rhodes, that involve people who are not easily infiltrated by, by informants. And, you know, I think I would argue 
that a part of the question of January 6th that's relevant to what happened in Denver in the infiltration there is to what degree the FBI was focused on racial justice demonstrators as they were in Denver that summer when they were turning a blind eye to increasing violence among far-right groups that summer. I mean, there was violence by the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys in the months leading up to January 6th. And, you know, this was something that the FBI was aware of. This was something that the whole nation was aware of, because in many ways it was broadcast on the news when it was happening. And so the question I would ask in this context is less about, you know, what informants were in January 6th, but what the FBI was doing in the months leading up to that. Were they more focused on racial justice demonstrators than they were on far-right groups that ultimately stormed the Capitol on January 6th? That's such a great point. Yeah, so... I know this is a weird question, but how do you think they view themselves? Because I think they probably think they're like, you know, these crusading heroes who are playing the long game and putting all the pieces together and keeping the country safe. Because you look at a guy like James Comey, he's a great example of a he guy who certainly thinks, has high self-regard. He thinks he's God's gift to the earth, right? <laughs> so is it your, do you view it that way as well, that these are people who gen- genuinely hold themselves in high regard and they don't feel like they're doing anything that's morally questionable? I think it's more complicated. You know, I mean, a a big way that I'm able to do my job and report on the FBI is the fact that not everyone, that the FBI isn't a monolith. There are people within the FBI who think there are problems with how the agency handles cases like the one in Denver and and, and these sting operations. So there are people within the Bureau who think a a lot of the... um, a lot of the processes are problematic. A lot of the practices are, are problematic. And But that said, I do think what happens that there is a certain amount of groupthink that happens as with any organization. I think most FBI agents go in with very good intentions and for all the right reasons. But I think ultimately they then, as many people do when they enter bureaucracies, find themselves in situations where they have to make cases, they have to play along with what the rules are, what the established established procedures are. And I think, you know, in many ways there is uh, a willingness just to accept like these sting operations as um, as necessary. And this is how the, the Bureau operates. And to a certain extent, I think that the, what I've had FBI agents tell me is this belief that in sting operations, that were it not for the FBI, someone else might come around and facilitate the plot the way that they did. So the idea for the FBI is that they will use an undercover agent or informant to facilitate a plot and foil it with the idea that someone else could become up behind them and do that if they hadn't done it. And what I, the point I always raise to these FBI agents is like, well, point to me a case where that's happened, where, you know, this guy who says he wants to bomb a building, doesn't have the means, doesn't have the connections, turns a corner and someone is like, hello, sir, would you like this bomb? I've got it for you. And like, that just never happens. And I, I think there is a bit of a delusion that happens in thinking that, you know, they are keeping America safe by getting these people off of the street because they've espoused violence. And then the other issue that I've, I've raised with FBI agents in, in these cases is that in many cases, in my view, the people that they target are young and impressionable Americans who I think if the FBI knocked on their door and said, hey, look, you're under investigation for the FBI for these things that you've done. Um, in many cases, those people would be so scared that they would back out and not do anything. And the the response I get from FBI agents when I say that is like, well, look, we're not a social services organization. We're a law enforcement organization. So if someone says they're interested in bombing a place, it's not our job to figure out, you know, whether they're really mentally in that place to do it. Our job is to see if they'll do it and we'll arrest them if they cross that line. And again, I think it gets at this conflict between 
you know, going back to the early days after 9-11, this conflict between the, the FBI as a law enforcement agency and the FBI as an intelligence agency. Mm. So if you're an intelligence agency, your purpose is to stop attacks and you stop these attacks and most likely the American public never finds out about it because you're protecting your sources. You stopped an attack that never happens. There was no reason that you would splash this across the news and say you did it. But because the FBI is measuring itself through the metrics of law enforcement, it's it's inclined to stop these cases in a very public way. And the way you do that is through sting operations like this. More interested in getting the arrest than preventing the crime, ultimately. That's that's more the goal of the agency. Which, by the way, reminds me of one of the most realistic shows of all time, you know, one of the best shows of all times, The Wire, where they they were like, you know, we got to get these arrests. So what they do is they go out, they arrest all the low-level drug dealers, but the institution is still in, in you know, together. And then there a bunch of people are on the street corner the next day. And instead of doing the hard work to crack the code to get the person at the top, it's like, I don't know, just go their numbers. run and gun, bust some skulls, arrest some people. Then we point at our books and say, we increased arrest by 32%. And then that's what the mayor runs on to get reelected. Well, but my question, Trevor, is that, you know, the, the view that you're putting forward of the agency is basically these stings come out of the sort of internal bureaucratic incentives to, you know, hit your numbers, take the next step up the, up the ladder, not rock the boat, et cetera, et cetera. But especially these really high-profile stings, they have a massive political impact. Um, obviously, you know, the Gretchen Whitmer kidnapping plot, which was quite sensational, which got covered heavily in the media. And it was right before the presidential election, um, certainly during the war on terror. You know, the the big press conferences, they, they do, oh, we disrupted this plot that was going to bomb Herald Square subway station or whatever it was. You know, that kept the public really feeling like this threat was upon them and we had to do whatever it took and it was here on our soil et cetera, et cetera. With Black Lives Matter, you know, if uh, this guy fomented additional violence in this protest, well, that feeds the narrative. This isn't just peaceful protests about racial justice. This has become a menace to our society that has huge, massive political impact. So how much of that is intentional and how much of it is just a sort of side effect of these bureaucratic incentives that you're detailing? So I think it's both the bureaucratic incentives and intentional. I mean, I think it's important to kind of look at the FBI as an institution. I mean, historically, this has been an an agency that needs an enemy. If you look at like the the immediate fall of the Soviet Union and the and the fall of the uh, the Berlin Wall, you know, this the the FBI had kind of an identity crisis. Like, who is our enemy now? And 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 and, and kind of you know foundered until nine eleven, and then you have a very clear enemy in um, in terrorists, and so you have. This idea that like the the FBI is always kind of searching for the next enemy, and mm-hmm. if you if you consider when it started infiltrating some of these right wing groups and Black Lives Matter and BLM, this is during uh, this is during as the war on terror is waning, and so I think a part of it is that the FBI is always kind of searching for the next threat, searching for the next enemy. Mm. But the problem is, so like anything, if you search a little bit too hard, you're going to find people that aren't exactly what you were looking for. And I think that's more commonly what's happening with the FBI in, in this particular case. And I, and I think it's also worth noting, you know, in the context of 9-11, you know, as you were saying, the FBI has used these kinds of sting operations to announce to the public and create this narrative that, you know, there's a constant threat out there, you know, that you be scared of the Muslim terrorists in the United States. But what they don't announce is that many of these people that they've arrested and, and imprisoned over the previous two years 
have since been released. You know, about half of the terrorism convictions post 9-11 have resulted in the releases of people who were convicted. And it's not like the FBI is announcing the people when to the public when that happens. I mean, if these people were so dangerous when they were arrested, you know, don't you think it, it would be concerning that they're being released now? And so to me, that that suggests one of two things. One, that the FBI believes that all of these convicted terrorists over the last 20 years have been fully rehabilitated by their prison term, mm -hmm. or two, that they were never that much of a threat to begin with. And I think the more troubling conclusion is that it's likely two, that the FBI was arresting people that were never quite the threat that they uh, claimed to the public. And now you're seeing this kind of continue, not just in Islamist extremism, but, you know, in the case of Whitmer, you know, right-wing extremists, and then in the case of uh, Black Lives Matter, racial justice demonstrators who were infiltrated by the FBI. Uh, final question for me. Does it annoy you when people uh, sort of mock the idea that a deep state exists? Because that really gets under my skin when people act like, deep state, what are you talking about? That's just a Trump term. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, I, I, I find the deep state as a term problematic for a number of reasons, but I also agree with you in the sense that, you know, there are organizations and agencies within the U.S. government that, you know, last beyond presidential administrations and, and in some cases for good, good purpose, right? Like we need, a, a, you know, to a certain extent, a steady government throughout administrations. But at the same time, I think the FBI is one where you have directors carry over from administration to administration. You have, you have employees in the FBI who are not very accountable and they, and they wield an enormous amount of power. And so if you're thinking about kind of the deep state more broadly, you know, the FBI certainly falls under that category. But I think the answer to that is to have a far more accountable, to have a Congress that keeps the FBI far more accountable. You know, through the 20 years of the war on terror, you know, the, the, the sting operations that we're talking about were not things that the FBI was called to testify about before Congress. I think in large part because at the time, most of these congressional representatives didn't want to go back to their districts every two years and have to run against someone who was saying like, oh, representative so-and-so is weak on terrorism. There was a political incentive to just let the FBI do what the FBI does. And I think we're now paying the, the price for that, that we've allowed the FBI these enormous powers and there hasn't been the level of accountability that there should be. I mean, you know, I, when a lot of this deep state stuff started during the Trump administration, I remember right when media and activists really, you know, beating the drum on a lot of the problematic practices of the FBI. One that I remember is they, they made a big deal about the no-knock warrant, search warrant that was used against Paul Manafort, as if that mm. was like somehow political retribution. And to me, it was like, you know, this is what the FBI does all the time. You guys are just noticing it now for the first time because it involves someone you're paying attention to. And so I, I, I do think, I, I regret kind of the discussion of the deep state in this kind of conspiratorial way, because I think it allows us to not really address the larger issue and the more important one, which is that this wouldn't be as much of an issue if we could have a Congress that keeps the FBI more accountable and perhaps a judiciary that is more aggressive in, in pushing back on the Department of Justice and the FBI. But at the same time, I don't have a whole lot of hope for that at the moment, because the only kind of accountability we're seeing is Jordan's committee, which is very one-sided and seems very clearly purpose to create a political narrative that's convenient rather than to get to any, you know, truth about the FBI and to hold it more accountable. Yeah, yeah. well, that's that's my last question is, uh, do you have any hope that anything useful will come out of that, quote unquote, weaponization of government committee? I mean, I saw people after your story came out, um, people tweeting it at members of the committee saying, hey, you're going to look into this too, right? Um, 
Obviously, there's none no of us. No way they're doing. None that. of us have uh, much faith in Jim Jordan, Kevin McCarthy, Tucker Carlson, or any of these other actors to have a, a fair reading of what the evidence suggests. But do you think there's any chance that there's anything useful that comes out of this? I don't think the Republicans on the committee have an interest in pursuing anything beyond the political narrative, um, and it, it troubles me that the Democrats. I think are, you know, positioning themselves as well. Well, if they're, if they're against them, we're for them. And so then they're defending the FBI. And I think the, the better, a better place for the Democrats to be would be to say, okay, well, let's look at the FBI, but let's, let's look at the abuses across the political spectrum on the, on all other cases that, it, that they're investigating and all the powers that they're abusing. But I just don't think there's a political will on either side to take you know, what could be considered kind of a more church committee-like approach to the FBI. And I would argue that's really what's needed. We need something that is going to look at the FBI in an honest way and a deliberate way, not in something that's just meant to score political points. And I think, as far as I can tell so far, that that, that appears to be what this committee is mostly concerned about. Yeah, that they want to weaponize it for their political purposes. I mean, these are people who want to designate Antifa a terrorist organization, mm-hmm. even though it's literally not even an organization. So that that's, yeah, it's all virtue signaling. Anyway, thank you, Trevor, for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, great breakdown of all this stuff. Guys, check out the podcast and also check out the book. I need to do that myself. Um, thanks so much for spending some time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Our pleasure. All right, so Trevor is a interesting guy. Very smart and very detailed. Yeah, that uh, was interesting. Um, Your position on the FBI, is it still even more uh, hardcore than mine? I would I would say yes. I mean, I'm not like completely abolished the FBI, but I think some dramatic reforms and curtailing of funding. Well, can't disagree with dramatic reforms and cutting okay, funding. Well, then we're to in me. the same place. Well, I, I mean, but would you agree with me that you, the CIA I is think, way worse? Because I would say the CIA is way worse. Like, I probably can't point to anything the CIA does. And it's like, good job. <laughs> but the FBI, at least every now and then, it's yeah. like, all right, yeah, not bad. Yeah, I guess so. I, I think that putting aside, like, specific reforms, because I, I don't even know where I would start with that. But I think, in general, my view is more consistently negative of the FBI than yours. Yeah. And I was we didn't even get to. I meant to ask him about um, this dude, Charles McGonigal who was, like, one of the most senior FBI officials in counterterror. And he was, like, involved in, like, the Russiagate investigation against Trump and whatever. Scumbag. And turns out he's, like, cashing in from oligarchs Ugh. and some other, uh, like, just totally corrupt. And this, again, this isn't some low-level note, but this is, like, one of their top dudes. So I think the organization is pretty rotten top to bottom. Pa- okay. Part of... The problem with like sort of viewing yourself in the James Comey way, like we're honorable and we're men of our word and we have a code and we're civilized and all that stuff, which is how they think of themselves, I think. Yeah. It's like if you take that thought process and then just remove it a couple generations, it starts to become we're honorable and civilized and noble no matter what we do. Right. Because we're on the good side. Yeah. So we don't have to prove it through our actions that, like, you know, we actually follow the letter of the law and we're detailed in our investigations. And I think that's what's going on with the FBI is that they view themselves as, like, you know, we're we're noble and we're civilized and we're fighting the good fight. And it's like, so therefore, ends justify the means, whatever we have to do to get to that. And so I think with all these, like, entrapment schemes, I know it's not technically entrapment, but colloquially it's entrapment right Mm -hmm. all these entrapment schemes i really think they they convince themselves like no the person would have done an attack you know with or without 
me being involved and like prodding them along the way. And I, the bottom line, I just simply don't buy that. I think that in many instances, there's no way some of these people would do attacks. I think there are maybe fringe cases where it's like they prod somebody, but that person maybe would have gone on to do some violence anyway. Yeah. But the bulk of the cases, it's like you guys are just like, you know, making something out of nothing and then patting yourselves on the back like you're heroes, you know? I mean, yeah, I'm in the middle of reading a book about Waco, so it's a particularly bad time to talk to me about, like, the FBI and the ATF and whatever, because what they did there, I mean, I'm not saying David Crush was, like, terrible and pedophile and whatever, but, you know, they led to the massacre of these women and children basically for as a PR stunt for themselves. So, yeah, like I said, I think, you know, the points Trevor made about how... Here they are focused on sending at least one agent provocateur. I think we would all expect that this was happening across the country in terms of BLM protests, that they're like fixated on trying to make these as violent as possible and entrap activists and whatever. Meanwhile, this threat on January 6th is developing right under their nose with informants literally in these circles. But they're distracted by this other shiny object over there. And so when some real shit is going down, they're not there. So it's, it's just... I think the powers that were handed to them post 9-11, whatever those powers were, they need to be pulled back. Oh, of course. The funding absolutely. needs to be pulled back. Yeah. The number of infor- 15,000 informants, when you're talking about Cohen, I didn't know those stats. Cohen Pro era, they had 1,500. And now we have 15,000, the number of crimes that they permit them I bet, to commit. I bet they've infiltrated Code Pink, all these anti-war uh, groups, yes. socialist groups, you know, far-right groups. That's the thing about the FBI that I don't think people really understand is that at their core, they are a fundamentally conservative organization and that they're a status quo protection racket. Mm-hmm. That's their job. So anything that's nominally a threat to the status quo is who they're going to investigate and who they're going to try to take down. And you see that reflected in their targets, right? Whether it's the mafia was a good example, the KKK was a good example, but the civil rights movement also, right. because they th- this is a threat to the established order. We are the guardians of the established order. So they're not really right-wing or left-wing. It's just an establishment protection racket. And that's why that actually explains my view of it, how sometimes they get some, something right, you're like, good job. But then other times it's like, they're wildly flailing and going after heroes who are just trying to make the country better. You know what I mean? Well, at bottom, their real goal is to keep the country terrified about something because that's how they justify their funding. Otherwise, their budget gets cut. Yeah. So as Trevor was saying, after war, okay, war on terror, they know what their mission is, right? Let's let's foment all these terrorist plots and swoop in and pretend to disrupt them. Like that's that's their thing, right? Under Bush, and then he says it amps up actually even under, under Obama. But then post-war on terror, you know, they got to look around and find another, yeah, figure out what's the next threat to keep people terrified so that they can justify their existence and the mass amount of money that goes to them and everybody's career and all of that. And so that's how you end up with them flailing around, like whether it's the Gretchen Whitmer plot or, you know, the BLM protest infiltration. That's that's what the agency is really about. It has to justify its existence. And so it has to prove that there are these terrible, scary, big plots happening all across the country and that they're the good guys swooping in to save you from them. Indeed. All right, guys. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. We certainly had a good time doing it. Um, Go ahead and subscribe on Substack if you if you haven't yet. We really appreciate everybody's support who already is a member over on Substack. It's five dollars a month. You get the video of every single interview and you get it a day early. Um, And remember, we don't take any corporate money. We don't take any advertiser money. We just you guys fund the show from the ground up. And we're very proud of that model. So go ahead and 
and check it out if you have not. And by the way, for everybody else, if you don't want to pay the five bucks, it's okay. We still love you. You sign up on Substack for free and then you get um, the free audio version, which drops a day later. It'll come right into your uh, email box. So anyway, love you guys. We'll talk to you soon. Very special guest next week. And let's say, let's just tell everybody now, um, it'll be dropping a day later than usual. Yes. Our Crystal Kyle and friends. But there's a very good reason for that, as you will find out. But very special guest, if I don't say so myself. I'm just saying today would be a good week to sign up because you can, you can get a little surprising tin. A little surprising tin is going to hit you in the face and it's going to be a pleasant one. All right, guys. Good teeth. Talk to you.